Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. We're going to run you all the way through until 12 o'clock when we hand over to Edith. In the studio with me today is Dr. A. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. And Dr. Lynn. Good, Good morning. morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? You're really early. I was like, what's going on? <laughs> Excited to be here. Yeah. Excited to talk science. Freaked me out. Didn't have, didn't have my alone me time. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. You went in the kitchen left yeah, me alone. I left so, you alone. Yeah, it was all good. Time. Now, folks, uh, we've got quite a few guests coming on the show today. We're going to be talking about everything from quantum biology all the way through to the weather and an amazing new exhibit that is happening in Melbourne. The curator is all the way out from Europe to chat about that, which will be pretty cool. But on the line, first up, we've got associate, sorry, Assistant Professor Clarice Aiello from the Quantum Biology Tech Lab at University of California, LA. Clarice, can you hear us? Yes, again. Good morning good, from LA to all of you. Good morning. You've got that uh, wonderful, I think, Brazilian accent I can hear. That's correct. I'm born and raised in Brazil. Fantastic. Uh, just for your information, later in the year and for everyone listening, we will be doing a Brazilian guest-only show because I've recently discovered there are so many amazing Brazilian researchers in Melbourne. Uh, Barbara Cardoso, who um, some of our listeners will know she's been on before, she's a nutrition expert, is going to get all of her Brazilian colleagues to come in and do one big show all, all about uh, Brazilian research. So anyway, there, there's a bit of context. Now, Clarice, you, you work in this really sort of Oh, fringe area at the moment that's really brand new. I mean, I, my old field was a lot of quantum physics, but quantum biology, tell us a bit about what we mean by that. Yeah, it's a very uh, edgy subject. So um, I myself am trained as a quantum engineer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, build instruments to study and control things that are so small and so well shielded from their environment that they're better described by the laws of quantum mechanics as opposed to laws of classical mechanics. So what does quantum mechanics might have to do with biology? So there's a lot of incomplete but uh, strong correlative data that seems to suggest that nature might be using the funky uh, laws of quantum mechanics, the laws that take over at very tiny scales in order to function and to function optimally. Right. So, uh, and it's pretty cool. So uh, the field has been around for uh, this type of data that I've mentioned, this type of correlative data has been around for more than, than 40 years now. And um, we're, we're really trying to push this field forward we are trying to unambiguously prove or refute mm. such claims with very high-tech quantum instrumentation yeah it's interesting i mean i mean there's a couple of thoughts there i have one is of course is that biology isn't immune to quantum physics i mean you can't just say i don't want to play in that space i mean there'll be elements of our biology whether we like it or not that has to obey the laws of quantum quantum mechanics that's just oh, yeah. the reality of the universe but in in your case with this work i mean i often think biology is really messy um, compared to what us physicists and, and, and engineers normally deal with, how do you how do you connect up the messiness of biology to the precision needed for quantum experiments? So, um, first of all, yes, uh, everything is is quantum at its core, right? Mm. Everything uh, sort of. Um, uh, behaves uh, quantum mechanically because everything like is composed out of atoms and but the first level of non-trivial non-trivial quantumness has to do uh, with a quantum property that physicists call superposition that has to do with the fact that objects can be say in two different positions at the same time uh in two different with two different levels at the same time. But everything that starts quantum dies classical, so that after a while, the object will be better described in one only location or with one energy, a definite energy only. Right. So, yes, it's quite uh, crazy to think that nature might be using this. However, um, there is data that suggests that superposition is being used by nature 
uh, at the same level that superposition is being used by nature, by, by technological quantum sensors, for example. Uh, physicists uh, are familiar with uh, technological quantum sensors that work at room temperature and under messy conditions. And the idea being that you can prove that uh, if you use a quantum object as a sensor, your measurement is improved. In other words, the sensor quantumness enhances the measurement. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, th that is uh, made possible by the use of superposition. Well, for chemistry, uh, proteins in solution, there is no doubt that uh, proteins in solution can explore superpositions to, to work. Uh, and, and actually, there's bona fide quantum sensing happening for proteins in solution. And uh, interestingly, uh, organisms and plates of cells in a totally cell type and organism type uh, agnostic way seem to be responding to stimuli uh, in a way consistent uh, with what would be expected were this type of bona fide quantum sensing be happening inside their cells. Mm. I mean, that's, that's, so, that's fascinating to me. Is, is there a particular, you mentioned some proteins, but is there a particular example in biology that you're going after that you think will be relatively easy to demonstrate, yay or nay, whether these effects are being utilized? Mean, because you said utilized, so actually this is an advantage of biology to utilize a exactly. feature like superposition. Exactly. Uh, that's not my main point of interest, but historically, that's the thing that uh, has been uh, studied uh, the, mm. the, the most thoroughly. Uh, birds. Birds um, are known that uh, to use the tiny, weak magnetic field of the Earth to navigate mm -hmm. um, in, in a way that seems to be quantum, in a way that seems to be under... Uh, seems to underlie a type of chemical reaction that depends on superpositions. So uh, the protein that uh, is most studied in this context is called cryptochrome that is putatively giving birds their ability to navigate. So this is what we're trying to do. But we, what we're trying to do in our lab is really bridge the land scales between proteins and solutions and, say, organisms, right? So what we're trying to do is, for the first time, say, in a single cell, prove or refute that cryptochrome actually can retain, uh, superpositions can retain its quantumness under, like, physiological conditions. Well, that's wild. I mean, I, I know, uh, having worked with some of the quantum physics groups here in, in, in Australia, you know, we have clean rooms, we evacuate every molecule of air that we possibly can from the environment. But when, you, when you're working with biology, you know, I assume some of this is in situ, in solution. I mean, this has got to be very different um, very in terms different. of the challenges. Yes. So uh, what we're developing are really is really are really micro glorified microscopes with coils, uh, coils to to input the magnetic field. But uh, when you look at what's behind those microscopes, uh, we have a structure that you would find in quantum labs, right? Mm. In a quantum sensing lab. Uh, everything is synchronized down to the nanosecond, and we we really want to do quantum-like measurements inside a single cell. Well, we're not there yet, but uh, we're confident that there's a lot of correlative data showing that it might be possible uh, that biology is indeed using uh, those funky quantum laws to, to do things, and we, we think we can control this knob rationally that's wild stuff clarice thanks so much for chatting to us today i hope you have i'm guessing a nice saturday afternoon over there in uh, somewhere in in la thank you very much have a nice day all of you thanks so much folks that's uh, assistant professor clarice aello from the quantum tech, quantum biology tech lab over at the university of california in la we're going to take a break for some, yeah, well, we'll go for some music. And when we come back, we will have our first guest on in just a few minutes. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R, an appropriate introductory track there from Credence, because we've got Jonathan Howe in from the Bureau of Meteorology. He's been on the show before. Welcome back, Jonathan. Thanks, Shane, for having me. It's good to be back. It's great to have you on. What is going on? Well, oh, no, we'll get into yeah. the details of the weather. You've got to be more specific. There's always <laughs> more than one thing going on. Yeah, asking while... somebody that works on the weather, what's going on? I mean, that's like... It's an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be a lot. Um, look, where I want to start, though, is um, El Nino, because I think there's been a lot of talk, and, and some of the media reporting around the Bureau's, um, I guess, 
sort of decision making around the whether or not we are in that phase or not is a bit interesting. Um, and I want you to talk us through what's required for us to declare El Nino and why the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia is better than all the ones around the world. Yeah, really good question. So there's definitely been a lot of talk in the media about El Nino and you know the, the US has declared it and other agencies have declared it, but the Australian Bureau of Meteorology has held off for a little bit. So I'm happy to just to kind of talk through the different criteria mm. points that we look for. Yeah. So I guess as a bit of background, many Australians know about El Nino. You know, it means dry and warmer than average conditions for most of the country, particularly yep. the eastern states. And of course it is associated with things like drought and increased bushfires as well. So really important uh, climate phenomenon for Australians. At the Bureau of Meteorology we look at four different criteria and to declare it as El Nino underway, three of those conditions need to be met. So okay. the first one is sea surface temperatures over the tropical Pacific Ocean. At the moment, that's been met at the moment. We are seeing uh, the shift in those temperatures. Second criteria... So, so sorry, is, is that sea surface temperature, is that the, the water temperature at the surface or the air temperature above it? That would be the sea surface temperatures of the water the itself. Water, right, so the, the, the top metre or whatever. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, 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 the water itself. Uh, And that's been met. Uh, The second condition we look for is whether or not the computer models themselves are currently indicating that we will see an El Nino occurring. Yep. All the global computer models that we use are indicating that's being met. So that's that's second. So that's two. Two out out of the four. Yep. And the third and the fourth, a little bit more murky at this stage. So uh, the third one we're looking at is what we call the Southern Oscillation Index. That's the difference in air pressure between Darwin and Tahiti. And we look at a rolling average just to make sure it's not oscillating around too much. That's sort of met the criteria, but it hasn't quite stabilised just yet. So we are looking to hold on a little bit. And uh, in order to see that kind of really established, we need to see uh, more cloud and rain over the central and eastern Pacific. We're not seeing that just yet. So that hasn't been quite met yet. And the fourth criterion, uh, we haven't quite seen a weakening of the trade winds. So right. the trade winds are what bring that moisture and tropical air across to Queensland and parts of New South Wales. You know, we have seen quite a bit of rainfall across northern Queensland recently, but we haven't quite seen those trade winds weaken off just yet. So uh, we still still need to go. Um, so we're kind of two out of four at this point. Yeah. Two, two and a half. Yeah. <laughs> so it's great criteria and it's lovely to kind of hear them broken down like that, Jonathan, and it's... I mean, I know from my time in the Bureau, there's also expert eyes that look at all these things, right, and kind of make the decision. How different are our criteria to the ones that the US use, for example? Obviously, they're looking at things that relate and so more to to their weather and climate, or are they just a little bit more tr- trigger-happy or sensitive than ours? Yeah, so it really depends because El Nino, even though it is over the Pacific Ocean, it impacts different countries differently. Of course, in Australia, um, particularly the Western Pacific, we're directly kind of you know, just kind of south of that Indonesian kind of Western Pacific region. Uh, but in the US, for example, um, the impacts aren't as great. And so the main criteria that they focus on is actually just the sea surface temperatures. They've currently met that condition, and so they're happy to declare an El Nino event underway. But in Australia, El Nino impacts us a little bit differently, so that's why we have a little bit more stringent criteria because we do know that um, if El Nino is declared, it can have huge impacts on the country, on, on the economy, and the way the way we do things around here. So uh, it's a little bit longer, but um, at this stage, we're still expecting very high chance of seeing El Nino develop. It's interesting to me, does everyone have the same data set and who generates that? Is, is part of that coming from us? Is it all from one set of satellites? Um, what does that look like? Yes, yeah, so with the sea surface temperatures, we look at the observations and the observations are as they are. You know, everyone's kind of looking at the same, the same mm. numbers to declare whether or not uh, the sea surface temperatures over the eastern Pacific, so that's yep. you know, off South America, whether or not uh, that has warmed, and that's indisputable. Um, other, otherwise, think looking at the pressure as well, um, we use that rolling average, so there is that kind of number as well. Uh, but certainly when it comes to, uh, I guess, the models, there's a little bit more room mm. for um, you know w- what the different global models are saying, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it really does depend. But those certain observations are certainly kind of... Everyone's um, got them. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right, well, it's a dumb question about data. I'm sitting here going, all right, he's talking about models and how you deal with data. Here isn't a dumb one. So how do we measure sea surface temperature? And I mean, I'm just thinking when I was a kid, I just always imagined somebody out there with a boat. But that must not be how things happen now. And is that infrastructure shared across countries? Yeah, or, so I, yeah, good question. So I believe we mostly look at um, use satellite data at the moment. So satellites are so advanced now, they can actually detect very small changes in the amount of radiation, which is a proxy for temperature coming off the oceans. 
And also they used to use boats. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, there are a lot of Argo. Sorry, Jonathan. This is, I'm just like, I can't believe you guys are asking these questions. It's so exciting to talk about this surface temperature. Um, satellites, I think, are also calibrated by uh, floats, buoys that are, mm. that are floating all around the ocean. There's over 3,000 of them that measure the surface and further down as well. And further back in time, before we had satellites, it was buckets in mm. boats. Buckets in boats. Measure. Buckets in boats. And yeah. you just put ice cream in and see if it melts or not. No, you <laughs> tip them over. You t- put the bucket over the side, yeah. pull it up, and then in. put the thermometer <laughs> in. And when they stopped using buckets or when they used different types of ships, you get a real bias in the global temperature right. record because sometimes the buckets would be thrown over closer to the motor or closer to different things and it would um, give a big stuff. bias in the record. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So, so Jonathan, I was, I was on the phone you know, when we were organising this interview and I was chatting to your colleague Andrea Peace who used to be on the show all the time yeah. years ago and you know, always welcome back Andrea if you're listening you know, come in on a Sunday um, and, and we were talking about you know, what this means in terms of things like bushfires and so forth and she reminded me that the big set of fires in 2019 wasn't during El Nino or La Nina, but it was in uh, the middle of the two. Is that, uh, I mean, can you speak to that? Yeah, so certainly an important um, consideration for Australians is that every El Nino is different. Mm. El Nino doesn't always guarantee drought. What it does is increase the likelihood of below average rainfall and higher than average temperatures for the country. But of course, in the lead up to uh, Black Summer, yep. that actually was a neutral year. So neither El Nino nor La Nina, uh, we actually had something else happening over the Indian Ocean, which decreased rainfall across eastern Australia. Yeah. So we don't necessarily need El Nino to see high bushfire impacts, but the, the reverse of that is also true as well. Yeah, wild. Has the Bureau of Meteorology put out their bushfire outlook yet for this year? Is that coming out soon? Um, we haven't put out the bushfire outlook for the summer yet, but yeah, we do work with um, AFAC to put out these bushfire um, kind of uh, outlooks. And uh, the most recent one for the kind of winter and spring did show that there was increased bushfire risk for some inland parts of the country, but certainly many people will be um, waiting very, very, looking very closely at what we do um, kind of predict for the summer season. Jonathan, I, I want to hear what it's like for you in a given day in the Bureau. I remember years ago, Andrea introduced the term embedded meteorologist, which I initially thought it meant she was stuck in a tree, but she actually was, you know, she'd go out with the bushfire crews and so mm-hmm. forth and report back from there. But what, what does your day look like are you you know like i remember this when i started in astrophysics i was stuck behind a computer all day all day just you know what the data reduction (laughs) drove me nuts um what's it like working in the bureau yeah i guess i've been a meteorologist for about 10 years now and even in that decade it's seen huge changes so um so an embedded meteorologist for those who aren't too familiar is that uh we're employed by the bureau of meteorology but we actually work for example with the fire agencies and it's only a very recent thing probably the last 15 20 years uh one of my colleagues claire yo was one of the first advocates and first embedded meteorologist with um victorian agencies and Mm. um having someone there at you know vic ses or you know new south wales ses is is absolutely crucial resource during kind of severe weather events where we can get the, get the information pretty much directly. So we still have embedded meteorologists around the country working with emergency services. Uh, meteorologists day-to-day, depending on the role, um, the forecasters, for example, um, they'll come in early in the shift, they'll receive a handover from the nighttime meteorologist, what's going on, what warnings are happening, and then we do something what we call uh, a bit of familiarisation with the models, looking at what the models are doing, um, a bit of weather watch and that sort of thing. And then we now rely a lot on on, on computer models to actually do the forecasting. So a lot of it is automated now. Uh, It never used to be, but we still have to have that kind of meteorology um, to actually produce the forecast it's, it's wild stuff I, I so i'm not sure if uh, you even know this linda but i did um work experience at the bureau of meteorology when i was in i high do school. know that because yeah. so did i yeah and <laughs> and i remember they just launched I, th- I think it was called geo one or something and they just launched one of australia's new satellites and and so i was pretty much ignored because everyone was so excited about this new satellite and it was like hey work experience dude go over and sit in that corner and look at these maps and it was but it was fascinating because everything there were these big etching sort of mm. tables and people were hand drawing all these maps and these 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 um these meteorologists were like these artists back then like i was like how did you learn to draw all these contour lines and so forth but all of that now presumably is just computer generated models and some some forecasters forecast actually still do that manual oh, really? analysis yeah it's, wow. a, it's a really um great tool because you know you can really get into the real detail of what's going on around the country but you know speaking of work experience i remember when i was in primary school we visited the uh 
the bureau office back on Latrobe Street in Melbourne yeah, CBD. Yeah, that's where I did mine. Yeah. Yep. And I remember there'd be a tornado machine. That, like, I'm not sure where that is. I would love to see if it's still around. So maybe someone has it in their home. Uh, but certainly, you know, times are certainly changing and a lot of things are automated, but certainly uh, the human element is so critical still. Mm, that's, yeah. that's what I was going to say, Shane. Yeah. I think that aspect of the artistry might have changed, but the communication and the nuances... Scaled up. Yeah, yeah have scaled up. You need a different set of creative skills, I think, now to, yeah. to make sure your weather knowledge is used in a really effective way. Jonathan, obviously there's a lot going on around the world at the moment in terms of climate. I mean, as someone who's so embedded within <laughs> embedded meteorologist, <laughs> but you know, you're so so entrenched in that world of, of forecasting and weather and, and climate. I mean, what is your impression of what's happening at the moment in the northern hemisphere and with the Antarctic ice sheet and so forth? I mean And well, also the South American temperatures. Yeah, I mean yeah, you, and well I was in Sydney just this last week, it was pretty warm there too, mm. you know. Like what um what I mean, what's your impression of all that? It is very alarming to see these records being broken all over the place. You know, you've touched on the Northern Hemisphere, mm. you know, Italy, United States, and then just this week, Argentina reaching 35 degrees in Buenos Aires. Right, in winter. Yeah, all things, yeah. these things are almost unheard of. And, you know, of course, it does come back to what's happening at the day-to-day, but, of course, it's part of a global, part of a wider global, kind of global warming, the ocean temperature is really increasing. So... Of course, you know, what that means for Australians, you know, it's still a bit early to say for this summer, but certainly, mm. you know, in the medium to sh- short to medium term, it is looking to be dry and warmer than usual. And, you know, hopefully, you know, the, what we see in the Northern Hemisphere isn't uh, a sign of what's to come this yeah. summer for Australia. Yeah. How much of the Bureau's um, expertise and sort of grunts is being put into more climate modelling and more long-term modelling now compared to what it was maybe 20 years ago? Is that is that really being pushed given... The infrastructure requirements that will come from, you know, if we have to deal with the sorts of things that Europe's been facing recently? Yeah, so certainly I always say, you know, better forecasting comes down to better computer models and more computing power. Uh, The Bureau a couple of years ago released its second iteration of the Access model. Mm -hmm. So we've got a model called Access S2 now. Huge improvements and it's constantly improving. We've got, you know, really smart people in the climate section and in the data section of the Bureau of Meteorology, you know, working on these uh, sorts of improvements. So certainly hoping that, you know, with improvements in understanding and improvements in computing power, we can get on top of these sorts of events. But of course, it does seem to be that, you know, the computer models themselves aren't quite coping with what's happening on a global scale. And yeah. I think we're seeing that in real time. Well, stop. Now, Jonathan, before I let you go, have you got a favourite meteorological uh, phenomenon that you just, you look out for? I mean, with Andrea, she was always chasing tornadoes and once sent me a, a sort of semi-rude message with her in the photo and the tornado in the background saying, ha-ha. Um, <laughs> but have you, have, have you got something like that that you, you, you want to see or you have seen or something just blew you away in terms of meteorological phenomenon? Yeah, I think um, well, tornadoes I'm quite scared of. Um, I have <laughs> Rightly huge so. admiration for my colleagues that go to the US every year and actually hunt down these tornadoes. Absolutely, absolutely crazy. Um, I must say, I'm a big fan of just blue sky weather. Right. <laughs> I, I always say, if there's no cloud, it's a pretty easy day in the office. <laughs> right. So you just want to chill out. You're kind of like, like a train driver with no passengers. Kind of like, exactly. Yeah, but of course, yeah. Yeah, in weather, you know, we all love, you know, forecasting those huge cyclones and we haven't mm. really had huge tropical cyclones over the last few years in Australia but you know we live for these huge weather events and we just really want to help and get the communications out there for any time there's a, a storm tornado or kind of bushfire so yeah. always tell people to keep an eye on the latest forecasts and warnings from us yeah and, and I suppose that communication is evolving a lot at the moment isn't it I've noticed just over the last five to ten years the way you describe things from the Bureau has changed. Like the, the way you um, put out information on how likely it is to rain mm. and the language use has shifted as well. Because people, you know, people do their hair according to this stuff, right? I mean, you know, like there's a frizz factor. That if you get wrong, you're in big, <laughs> big trouble with a lot of people in Melbourne. So that, that communication has got to evolve. Yeah. I definitely agree. I think um, there's been a real shift over the last um, years and decades of rather than telling what the people's rather than telling people what the weather's going to be, we tell the people how the weather will impact them. Yeah. So you know, rather than saying it will be X degrees, we'll say you know it's going to be you know heat wave warnings or it's going to have impacts on health and that sort of thing. And 
that's becoming really important. And so that's how we've kind of shifted our language. But of course, people are more weather savvy these days. So uh, it always is great to kind of get into those technical details as well. Yeah, look, it's wild stuff. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on the show today. We're going to get you guys on more often and we'll drag Andrea back into the studio at some stage. I think she probably remembers where the place is. It's been a few <laughs> years. Uh, but look, it's great hearing about it. I think, you know, I share Lyndon's absolute joy hearing about some of the, the attributes of weather and so forth and what it means because it is just the way that the earth breathes and drinks and does everything that it does and how dynamic our system is is just phenomenal and when you when you hear about that um you just want to know more so thanks so much for coming on Einstein Gogo. thanks for having me and always always happy to come back and chat excellent thanks Shane folks uh, that was Jonathan Howe from the Bureau of Meteorology here in Melbourne we're going to take a very short break for some station announcements and when we come back we're going to be talking about art and science but uh, art triple R Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. It is 11.30 a.m. here on Triple R. In the studio with us now is Monica Bello, who is the head of arts at CERN in Europe. And we also have Tilly Boleyn, who is a sci- the Science Gallery Melbourne curator here in Melbourne. Welcome, both of you. Hello. Now, you, Monica, how long have you been in Australia? Uh, Ten days. Ten days. Well, you've you've been around then. That you've had plenty of time. Yes. This is setting up the exhibit, though. I guess you've been working pretty hard. Uh, yes, very hard. <laughs> Barely let her out of the building. <laughs> <laughs> now, Tilly, before we we sort of um, get on to Monica with all the details, just tell us the science gallery is on the corner of Swanston and Grattan. Do I remember? I was at yeah. uni for twenty seven years. You'd think I'd know. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly where we are. So, yep. where the old site of the women's hospital used yep. to be, uh, within on the doorway of the University of Melbourne. Yep. And can people just? go there is it a paid entry how does that work yeah no it's absolutely free all the time so we're open from tuesdays to saturdays from 11 till 5 and with them once a month we have these late nights where on friday nights uh we open up not only the exhibit but there are performances roving performances there's workshops there's food there's drink there's all manner of things and it's all free because we're focused at young people sort of 15 to 25 everyone else is welcome but the other people that we're trying to pull in and show how incredibly creative and curious science is and one of the big barriers of getting them in the door is money is disposable income so everything we do is free that's fantastic now monica you're out because of the dark matters um exhibit but before we get on to that uh, tell us you're the head of art at cern i think a lot of people wouldn't even be aware that there was a head of art at cern tell us about what you do there it's wild I'm the head of arts at CERN and I'm the curator. So mm. I run the programs. We do residencies and uh, we do uh, art commissions, yep. as supporting the artists from research to production. And I do the exhibitions and collaborations. So uh, any partnership that uh, yeah brings this, you know, two things. Uh, together and uh, supporting people to understand what art and science uh, can do. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's fantastic. I mean, here we we can only use audio. We're really restricted. But you can use touch and sound and light. And, I mean, you have so much scope to connect people up with the science in a way that is not normally done. In, in some in an environment like CERN where, you know, I mean, we're talking particle physics, so, you know, it's not something people normally chat about in the pub. What sort of things do you do that connect people up to that with art? We... Um when the artist come uh, comes to to CERN, we have many coffees. <laughs> so the, the the artist, all of them are uh, welcome to be part of the community. It's a large community; it's more than ten thousand people, mm. and uh, the, all of them come from different parts of the world. So it's a yeah, it's a very welcoming uh, um, yeah environment. So uh, we have coffees, many of them, and uh, lunches and so stuff that allows uh, yeah anyone to to feel welcome but then we go to the accelerators detectors technical sites of any kind because the scope is very broad and then the theoretical department is a place where we spend many hours with the artists as well with the theoretical guys yes oh geez there i I used to work on the same floor as some of the theory guys when i was at melbourne union they're a tough nut to crack. How do you how do you get, <laughs> getting getting stuff out of their heads into into a form that's manageable? That's tough. 
Yeah, well, it's tough, but they are eager to tell stories. Yeah. And uh, so this engagement is something that, uh, yeah, we, it, you can do with art. So you need a blackboard, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Yep, yep. <laughs> and they draw and do equ- equations and uh, explore ideas. So... Uh, if you are familiar with physics, you, yeah. you know that yeah, you, you can really dream and imagine other worlds. The world-building aspect is something that uh, many people are interested in, or ideas of time, what is time, temporality. And, and, and then there are other people who like hardcore questions, like uh, mm. supersymmetry or, um, I don't know, scales yeah. in the universe, cosmology, yes. something more cl- uh, closer to science. Yeah, string theory. All this string yeah, theory. yeah, lots of strings. Now, tell us about the exhibit here, um, the Dark Dark Matters exhibit. What what story are you telling with this exhibit here in Melbourne? The story is a question. It starts with a question. So we know that there, there is a huge amount of matter that we don't know what mm. it is, but it's there. It can be measured. It has been measured with experiments, with yep. uh, yeah, some ideas that someone in the 30s had and then progressed. Uh, during the 20th century. So it starts with this question. How come we are here? We know about the f- 5% of matter, but we don't know about the rest. Yeah. And uh, with this question, we also invite to, um, yeah, to, for people to to think of their own individual questions or the, the questions they might have in connection with other beings, other entities, other agencies. Uh, so it's a great opportunity to, to think of, yeah, big ethical questions, challenges that we are facing today in our world, uh, things that we might need to tackle, but yeah. uh, they are still there waiting for us. And, and what sort of things will, will people see or interact with in the exhibit? Like, what did the, I, I remember I went to an exhibit about light that was on at the at Federation Square at the um, Moving Image uh, Gallery there, and it was it was wild. They had all these different ways that people could interact with light, and I thought it was you know I'm, I I sort of my my background is in optical physics, so you know I, I had a real appreciation I think for just how well they connected the science through the art to the people walking through. So what sort of things will people see in the exhibit? We don't have many light uh, <laughs> particles well, here, dark, dark, dark but matters. we have uh, yeah, uh, particles like muons. And uh, mm. we have a great work by John Bott, uh, an, an artist from, from Australia, who is doing a muon detector. And you, uh, anyone in the gallery can go there mm. and, and see the muons passing through. Right. This detector and oh, uh, cool. and there is this device that uh, allows anyone to to think about the muons and the the cosmic rays and uh, how they are crossing our bodies or they are around us and uh, so that's a kind of interaction that is not by touching or yeah. uh, feeling a machine but is is more about understanding that is a subatomic world that is part of us and. Um, and uh, what else? Uh, accelerators and sweaters. That's an interesting one. <laughs> there is an artist, uh, Julie Jonas Urvonas from Lithuania. Uh, he invites us to think about the universe, not as blocks of uh, stuff, building you know, uh, yeah, building block, a uh, wall, but um, something closer to, yeah, strings and threads that are crossing around right. uh, matter. So he, um, he created... Um, Sweaters with this, <laughs> with the idea of, as, of as, an accelerator could be a sweater as well, and uh, and you can see these beautiful sculptures in the gallery. And uh, what he else? Got, when he went to Arts at CERN, he was totally obsessed with the uh, magnetic quantum magnetic levitation of what happens when you get the superconductive uh, threads and you have them at a very low temperature and then have a magnet underneath, they will levitate. And Julianus really wanted his work to uh, be done with superconductive threads, but we explained that we didn't quite have the, uh, the, the conditions in the yeah. gallery for such a cold temperature, so he's done it with copper. But it's this, as, as Monica said, like he, when Julianus connected to the physicists, he really wanted to get in there and change their language about how you talk about physics when you're bringing people in and not being the building blocks of life, but rather pulling into the threads of the universe. Yeah. And we're saying all of these concepts about physics, I really want to get through as 
as well that you do not need to have an understanding of physics when you walk in. Part of the joy of Science Gallery is that in bringing together all of these different disciplines and having a peer-to-peer model of young people in the gallery mm. talking about these ideas, we're not trying to have people walk out being particle physicists. There's no test. There's no test at the end, I promise. But to engage in the glory (laughs) of this research coming together and the wonder of the questions it raises. Because, you know, the, the title of the show is Dark Matters and the S on the end is because, of course, with a collaboration with Arts at CERN, we've got particle physics in mm. there, we've got mm. string theorists, we've got snapshots in behind the scenes of CERN. But because it's at Science Gallery, we've got an S because it's not only looking at the unseen and the unknown in physics and the universe around us, but within ourselves, within what those questions of the unseen and unknown are of that exploration that really drives not only scientists but artists and designers and what it means to be human of exploring that edge of knowledge and excitement and stepping Mm. into it yeah it's cool stuff just sounds so amazing tilly i can't i can't wait to see it previous exhibitions at science gallery melbourne you've sort of put out a call and scientists or artists or a combination thereof have put pictures in and said we want to do this we want to do that is how is this one work differently are most of the pieces done by artists who have visited CERN or is it is it a combination was there a young person component in the selection of the pieces as well how did that work yeah absolutely so it lent into our already quite layered process but because we knew we wanted to collaborate and genuinely collaborate with arts at CERN about half of the works come from artists who have had residencies at CERN but those were still um, decided on with the help and input of at Science Gallery we get together a curatorial panel of people in that age range that we're trying to hit so between 15 and 25 um, and they go through we absolutely did the open call got over 360 um, projects pitched to us which Mm. is just such yeah such a sign of how much this topic connects in with people as well and so we went through those uh, with the team and with the curatorial panel and Monica and um, wrestled to the end of what were the works that we're going to finally be in and it's a it really is a collection of both local and international artists who are coming at those different ideas of revealing the unseen and the unknown yeah it, it's interesting Monica one of the things that I hear from you is you know it, because I am a physicist, mm. in tra- you know, originally, and and a lot of what you're discussing is the sort of more difficult to interact with the public part, you know. So if you if you said, you know, what's what's my immediate, you know, application for that work, and I said, well, come back and talk to me in fifty years, because then then you know we'll have something good, um, like it could be something simple, like automatic opening doors or whatever. But you know, like these things take a long time to progress through society, and a lot of what you're talking about is that style of science, that very fundamental stuff. I mean, it seems to be a very specific role for art here to help our community connect with that, because often that is very hard for people to get their head around. Yeah, I am. Um I fully agree. I, I came to CERN in 2015. I knew very little about particle physics. Mm. And uh, now, uh, yeah, I can speak particle physics. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it took me eight years. Huh? It's a vocabulary that we don't even have. Um, science and society have this challenge. Science, mm. um, science is part of culture. But I don't think in a laboratory you feel that connection. And, um, and uh, through art... You can send a message mm. and also experiment around. But um, there is a thing about uh, temporalities as well. So when I see my colleagues at CERN building an accelerator, the next accelerator, that they will stay there for the next 50 years, and uh, uh, that's a massive challenge. Because, yeah. okay, you imagine the young people building this accelerator or uh, up, doing the upgrades in the ne- in, in 50 years so uh, you really have to engage with this future scientist mm. in many ways not only through communication of science as explaining science but by uh, bringing everyone together science is a common and planetary uh, knowledge it's, it's, it belongs to everyone it doesn't yeah. belong to uh, 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 Einstein. It belongs to everyone. Yeah. It doesn't belong to a small community. So art 
uh, is a powerful way to convey these complex ideas. Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting when you when you speak with that way because I years ago I worked with the Victorian College of the Arts while helping them with strategy and you know my background was physics and I was trying to work out you know how they thought and what they did and and some of the fine artists had to tell me what research meant from their perspective, which of course was very different from my I didn't understand it and I, I knew the word, but it didn't mean a lot to me in the context of art and i mean in your role you must do research as a expert in art in the same way as i would do research in the expert in science is that right yes we we do that we do that in, in fact uh, I, th- I i think a lot about uh, the artist and the curator because i mm. work with artists as experimenters so we need to open new venues for thought uh, these portals that we they are there waiting for us and uh, they bring uh, difficult questions and conflicts and frictions sometimes and we we don't need to be scared because it's about uh, pushing the boundaries of knowledge as we know we always say that but uh, yeah, being active and uh, yeah, and uh, I'm brave about it. And I think artists have this power. Yeah. And uh, p- artists have massive courage because, I mean, at the end of the day, they are always yeah uh, with these uh, impulses and obsessions mm. about things that yeah are there waiting for yeah. us. Yeah, I love it. Um, Monica, some some people who would be working in scientific organisations might think. Oh, it's brave that there is uh, a head of art at CERN. You know, there, well, there could be other people listening who work in scientific organisations thinking, oh, my God, I wish we had a, an of artist, <laughs> a head of art, or we had some artists, more artist residents in our organisation. I'm interested in how your role evolved. Was it to build that internal culture within CERN to realise that their work could be communicated in different ways, or was it about outreach, or, or were you approached from the artistic community like I, I, I just don't understand how such a valuable role can be started in other places so we can figure out how to start it in other places yeah it's a it's a multi-layer role and i i combine management with uh, yeah the the creative vision the artistic direction and it has definitely evolved with the science as well because i'm so i spend a lot of time with scientists and i check yeah stuff what is going on in the lab is very important and um and there is something in science and you you might know uh, might be familiar about this science is global so you uh, i i have a good understanding because i'm very curious i'm very very curious person and uh so i go and, and i ask the guys hey i so what is happening in cosmology and uh, now with the gravitational waves what what is the thing that is going on so this global Collaboration that is science is very important, and when I do that, I have the tools to talk and uh, and work with the artists because artists usually don't have these tools. Yeah. And uh, the the access to the laboratories is something that the the general public, the artists, philosophers, uh, writers don't have often. So for me, my role is to open this door, but. I need to know what what is the place about, and then sustainability. So I fundraise. Uh, so the program, uh, well, the laboratory covers salaries, but everything we do is uh, with sponsors, uh, with supporters, and and there is a sustainability, um, yeah, a mandate which is very important, and uh, this is how science works as well. So uh, any laboratory who is interested in uh, creating a program, I don't think they should do it through their uh, press and media department. They could start by doing it like this, but they should uh, think of uh, creating a role of this kind, or several, (laughs) more than one, and uh, and to think about the, the, the... overall framework that needs mm. to be done with cultural um, connection with science. Yeah. yeah, It's wild stuff. And I think we're seeing more and more of this. I know at the Walter Liza Hall Institute here in Melbourne, they have some beautiful art sitting in their corridors and so forth. We had a guest just a few weeks back on who was uh, a legally blind um, artist who was helping uh, those who, who don't have um, their full vision interact with the science down at Monash in some particular types of exhibits, which was just wild. And when she 
described her experience as, you know, the partial vision that she had. We were all just amazed, you know, because for a moment we actually listened to her and her experience as to what that was like to engage with the science. So, look, it's fantastic stuff, Monica. It's great to have you out here to, um, you know, help us Aussies with their stuff. It's good. We, we love it. It's um, Particle physics is such an incredibly interesting area. Just before you go, though, Tilly, um, the exhibition is open as of yesterday, I believe. Yes, so that's it's right. so it's open until uh, until the second of December. Okay, so plenty of time. Plenty Corner of, time. of it's the old women's see, hospital. No, we're talking to old yeah. people like me there who remember <laughs> what that building was like. It's the shiny new building on the corner of Swanston and Grattan Street um, called Melbourne Connect. Yes. And the right. science gallery is in there and people can just wander in. It is free and it's open from... From 11 till 5 on Tuesdays to Fridays and yep. then 11 till 4 on Saturdays. Excellent. Well, uh, Tilly Blint, thank you very much for coming in and Monica Bello, great to have you here in Australia um, putting this all together and so forth and uh, we look forward to seeing it. Thank you for having me. Folks, uh, we're going to take a short break for some station announcements and when we come back, we're going to finish the show with a little bit of news for you. Triple R. Welcome back, folks. This is Triple R. We've got a few minutes left. Uh, Dr. Linden, some news for us. Yes, I have some news, but I'm going to start it with a question. I think you both probably know the answer to this. Oh. What is the heaviest animal to ever have existed? I'm going to say blue whale. Blue whale. Blue whale? Yes. Ding, oh. ding. Oh. Ten oh. points to Gryffindor. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Were you feeling a bit anxious? I was a little worried. Like, <laughs> is, is, there, is there something that's been discovered I don't know yeah. about? <laughs> we normally talk about the longest animal, which is also the blue whale. Oh. The heaviest oh. animal is widely agreed. If you go into your 101 Science Facts books that I assume everybody has in their living room, you would see mm. blue whale. The heaviest blue whale ever found uh, at the peak of the whaling period was about 190 tonnes. Wow. So that's yeah. almost four trams. If we go, Ooh, yeah. you know, from rhino, what is it, 50 rhinos is a tram. A tram's about 50 tonnes, <laughs> uh, almost four trams worth of weight, right? And that's that, a lot. That's a lot. And that was well. that is well known to be the heaviest animal to have existed. Yeah. <gasps> what about dense? What's the densest animal? I don't know. Me either. Thought you might know. <laughs> I was going to say something offensive, like the stupidest animal. But I, oh, that's that's yeah, know. we know that person. No, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Leave Chris alone. Uh, well, no. This is the thing. That was the answer to the question. Except this week, a paper was published in Nature that has discovered a potential contender ah. for the heaviest animal to ever have existed. Damn you, science. Re- <laughs> researchers, uh, it's a global team, but researchers in Peru have discovered some fossils. They've found 13 vertebrae and four ribs and a little bit of a hip bone of a new species of whale, a whale-like oh. critter that lived about 39 million years ago. They've given it the name Perichetus colossus. And the... Um, the median weight or the weight range that they're giving for this particular species is 85 to 320 tons. Wow. So they're wow. not saying that they're kicking the blue whale off the top close. of the list, but they're saying it could be a contender. They don't know yet. They haven't found yeah. a skull. They don't know kind of what it, exactly what it looks yeah. like, but based on other whale-type critters, creatures that lived at the same time, they, have, they, they think it might be pretty heavy. And the main reason that they're thinking this is because the bones – that they have discovered the fossil bones are so dense these bones they've um they have this thing called pachyosteosclerosis so pachy meaning thick osteobone sclerosis um hardened they're very Mm. hard bones and they're very thick it kind of looks like they have been inflated really if you see the picture of these fossilized bones when the people in the field first discovered them they thought they were rocks because they were so dense they had to take them to the lab to discover that they were bones. Taking them to the lab took three years to get them wow. from the yeah. um, the place in southern Peru up to Lima to the Natural History Museum there. Took a few people to move the any of the bones to the microscope yeah. to explore them. The first time they tried to drill a hole in to examine the bone density, the drill broke. <laughs> so these bones are huge super and yeah. super strong and super heavy because just like modern-day manatees, the whales, the whale creatures that lived back in the Eocene here about 39 million years ago were shallow sea dwellers. So they oh. would kind of graze on the sea floor. But if you're a giant, you're also very yeah. buoyant yeah. and they needed big 
thick, fat, heavy, dense bones. To allow them to go under. Allow them yeah. to go under, just yeah. like um, manatees and dugongs yeah. kind of do today. So this uh, this is a really exciting finding, which is why it went straight into nature and it's been all over the news this week uh, because this is predates a lot of giantism that they've um, they've found in the kind of historical yeah. fossilised well, record. Keep digging, there's got to be a head. That's it. That's why I love yeah. this story. You know, yeah. normally, I normally like when we bring a, a new fossil in, when, yeah. we talk, when we talk about fossils yeah. on this show, I'm like, oh, yeah, new dinosaur, yeah, yeah, new yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. whatever. But this is amazing, right? It's yeah. 2023 and we've just now discovered a creature that might be yeah. Like heavier than the blue whale. There's so much to know. It's yeah. just. It's Wouldn't it be very funny cool. if it had a really small head? Well, the, that, like you the should see hands, the pictures yeah. and the the lead researcher said, <laughs> oh, it would kind of look like if I had to guess because they haven't found a skull right. yet, yeah, yeah. but they're basing their right. uh, artist reconstructions on. Uh, other critters that lived at a similar time and the, the scientist the lead researcher said oh it would kind of look like a sausage with a head so it's like this huge <laughs> this huge kind of wobbling creature i think we with, need to find the head with a barrel to your face yeah it, it's really it's a very very uh, exciting finding so good, good excellent. news this week excellent dr ray uh dr shane just uh quickly there was an article in nature that caught my eye about researchers from Johns Hopkins, uh, Spain, and Burkina Faso, where they had noticed in laboratory conditions that a particular type of marsh mosquito for some colonies was all of a sudden unable to transmit malaria. And they asked why. And as it turns out, you know, a number of things can live in a mosquito's stomach, and malaria is one of them. But one of the others is a a different bacteria, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce, which they next nicknamed TC1, which was indigenous in this bacteria as well, uh, this uh, mosquito as well. And it secretes an alkaloid called harmane, which prevents female malaria protozoa from developing in the gamete stage. Wow. So it actually prevents them to be able to actually pass on the infection. And they, they did a lot of modeling on it. They did quite a lot of research and realized they could make strains of this work in other mosquitoes as well. And um, when the mosquito bites, it doesn't spit out the bacteria. And they think it can be used because they tested it in this thing called the Mosquito Sphere, which is a facility in Burkina Faso Mm. to test different mosquito malaria transmission. I didn't know there was a place called the Mosquito Sphere facility, which is kind of awesome. I'm just imagining a greenhouse just jam-packed with mosquitoes. No, no, it was way bigger. Like, you know, it simulates marshes and standing water near, like, uh, fake houses and stuff. Do not break the glass. No, (laughs) no. But uh, it, it was just fascinating because it's a naturally occurring bacteria. It's not genetic modified it's in waterways it's in soils it's already present and the 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 beta the 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 chemical harmane is also even in fried meat so it's already out in the environment they see this as a way to they show that it can colonize bacteria through very easy transmission the model estimates were saying they could limit bacteria transmission by about malaria cases up to 15 percent by using this as part of a control measure Mm -hmm. and it was just amazing because it, you know, normally when we try to put things in the environment, we worry about we're messing with our ecology. Mm. But because it's already there in yeah. soils and waters and, yeah, yeah. And, and the chemicals actually already endemic to even mammals, it really has the potential to have a, a much more natural impact and replace insecticides and also change efficacy in that area. I like it. I That's like great. it. Also, uh, just before we go, a huge congratulations to the Canberra Deep Space Network team who managed to reconnect to the Voyager 2 probe Yay! this week there was a slight downtime where we were out of contact people got a bit excited starting throwing blame but hey it's been out there for almost what 47 years it's still going still strong out there and thanks to the team in canberra connection re-established at the end of round trip time there is 38 hours oh that's how far so away to send a message at the speed of light at the speed of light and, come and for back. it to come back 38 hours oh so God. you know you gotta wait you gotta be patient be patient people uh, anyway, it's going strong. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It in just a moment. I can see Cam is over there in Studio 2, ready to go. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go today. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic Sunday, and we will chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Go Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.